I am Pixie Turner, and you are listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 146. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Jelena Levin. See ya! Всем привет! And we have to do this without Pontus, because he's traveling at the moment. Now it's Eastern. Yeah, for a change. <laughs> for a change. Yeah. So, how have you been? Good. Yes, all is good. Um, nothing really much to report. No? Apart from my visit to New York. But it wasn't a very skeptical visit, so can't really say. What do you mean? I did look to see if there's any events that we can go to, but there was nothing that particular weekend. Because so. New York is a good place to catch various speakers. Did you try posting it on Twitter or Facebook or something? Calling for a... I'm not very active on... No? Good old social media anymore. So. No, okay. This is how I actually found the group of skeptics in Ottawa, in Canada, a couple oh, of years right. back. Of course, so yes. So I, I posted it on Twitter, and someone There's, someone replied, and yes. and then one thing led to another, and yeah. then we ended up meeting in person. Mm, well, that's a good lesson for me in the future. And uh, we've been doing that ever since. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, no, nothing, nothing's going on really. Um, no. What about you? I'll be appearing very soon on one of my favorite shows ever, which is the Reality Check. Amazing. Yeah. Um, they seem to be interested in uh, what I have to say about uh, being a skeptical tour guide. So um, stay tuned for that. Brilliant. It's definitely one of the best skeptical podcasts out there so i'm so excited about that and the oldest uh, they've been going for for ages yeah. yeah 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 for 10 years yeah yeah well done pretty good so moving on to what we have on offer to our listeners this week that is an interview with someone who's been doing a really great job in educating people into the real science about nutrition and health and healthy diets and that kind of stuff. Uh, Pixie Turner. Yes, very exciting. And you missed her talk at QED. I have. I will be looking forward to eventual YouTube clips yeah. release, which might take a few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we decided to invite her for an interview. So uh, without further ado, why don't we crack on with the interview? Let's do this. All right. On every other episode, we usually interview someone who's interesting from a skeptical point of view, either by representing an organization of a certain European country or a project stretching across borders. This time, we have here with us British nutritionist, biochemist, blogger, speaker and author Pixie Turner. Having a first-class honours degree in biochemistry and a master's degree in nutrition, she talks and posts about nutrition facts and science-based dietary choices and tries to help people to love food. She has a 121,000 strong follower base on Instagram and has written two books on the above-mentioned topics. In her own word, she is set out to cut through the BS in the wellness industry and show the world just how simple healthy eating can be. Pixie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it was quite obvious for both uh, Pontus and I, Yelena was unfortunately not there at QED, where we met you where you gave a very inspirational talk about your story uh how of of how you turned your back towards the earlier ways of of, of yourself as a nutritionist so can you give us a brief overview of that story i can yes so when i was 19 i had a blood test and everyone in my family had to have a blood test at that time and that showed that i had quite high cholesterol mm -hmm. and because my dad had very high cholesterol and his his mum had very high cholesterol it was suspected that it was genetic and so 
my endocrinologist basically said to me, it might be genetic. We're not 100% sure, but come back in a year's time, have another test. And if it's still high, you're going to have to go on statins, which is the drug of choice um, for high cholesterol. And you have to be on it for the rest of your life. Now, that didn't sound particularly appealing to me at that point. I was only 19 or 20. I was still quite young. The idea of taking drugs for the rest of my life I didn't really like the sound of that so much. So um, obviously the first thing I did is I turned to Dr. Google, which is where everyone goes for the best health advice out there. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. and so I found, I started Googling and naturally ended up with a whole bunch of woo and weird shit come up that told me to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things in order to make my uh, make my cholesterol better and also just to make me healthier. And the first thing that I started doing was the I Quit Sugar program which is run by Sarah Wilson in Australia. Now, she doesn't actually do it anymore, um, but at the time it was absolutely huge. And the whole idea behind it is it's very paleo-themed, so you're not allowed to really eat any sugar whatsoever, not even fruit. Um, there's a big focus on on eating more high-fat, more low-carb. And so I started doing that, and I didn't really like the idea of not eating fruit I found that quite difficult, um, and I didn't really like it as well because it was it didn't feel quite right for me, and it didn't really work as well as I wanted it to. So then I went back to Dr. Google and I found the UK wellness bloggers and I found all these really attractive, glowing, healthy looking, successful uh, women who were all posting on social media about how they'd managed to change their diets and cured themselves of all sorts of weird and wonderful health conditions, whether that's something like um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or eating disorders or with, or like skin problems. They all had some Thing that they'd managed to basically fix by cutting out a whole bunch of things from their diet. But of course, what they were doing, it wasn't a diet, it was a lifestyle choice. And it was, um, they were framing it as this hugely empowering thing to do. And I fell for it 100%. I absolutely convinced myself that this was what I had to do. And so over time, I gradually started cutting out more and more things from my diet. I started with um, meat and fish. Then the cheese went and all dairy products, the eggs disappeared. So it was basically consuming a pretty much a vegan diet. Then the gluten went, so I went gluten-free because one of the bloggers said that gluten is like sandpaper for the gut. And oh my gosh, that sounds horrible. And so obviously, obviously, <laughs> obviously I had to cut out gluten because it's such a dangerous thing for everyone, right? And then next I cut out soy because apparently that messes with your hormones. And so it's really bad for you and you should, everyone should avoid that. Then came the refined sugar. So unrefined sugar, like maple syrup, that's totally fine. You can eat as much of that as you want but the the white sugar the, the that's the toxic stuff that you have to avoid and so i did that and then i think i kind of went more down the raw vegan route for a little while but that was always a temporary thing so it was always dipping into doing like raw vegan challenges for a month and then going back to eating um eating cooked food again but I, as you can imagine, by this point, I wasn't eating any animal products. There was no soy. That doesn't really leave much in the way of protein. Um, yeah. And then when you and then when you go raw as well, there's no beans, no pulses. So it's a very weird way to eat, <laughs> to be honest. And so I was having like raw vegan birthday cakes, which I convinced myself were oh so delicious, but were actually pretty gross, as my family <laughs> can probably confirm as I forced them to eat it as well. Um, and I also did the occasional like juice cleanse always only for like a day at a time, nothing bigger than that. And I also organized events in London because at the, while I was doing this, I was posting pictures of food the whole time on Instagram. And I was using things like hashtag vegan, hashtag clean eating, hashtag detox, because I obviously, I didn't know anything about what I was doing. And I was, so I was posting all of this on social media and I was gaining followers really quite quickly. And so by the time I'd been doing this for about a year, I think I had about 50,000 followers on social media. So it grew really, really quickly. Wow. And at the height of it, I was doing, I was organizing events in London, which would sell out in under an hour, um, where people would come together for brunch or people would come and have picnics together, where we basically enable each other's very restrictive habits around food by creating an environment in which it was only acceptable to eat in this very restrictive way. There was a huge list of foods that were not allowed. <laughs> 
that people weren't allowed to bring. It was very restrictive and it was a strange environment because on social media, it's very much, it's like a cult. So you only follow people and associate with people who eat the same way you do. And anyone else you just kind of shut out or ignore, or they're seen as being sort of unenlightened. They haven't yet seen the light about how wonderful this way of eating is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was quite a toxic place really to be on so to be on social media during that time you did mention your family that you kind of enforced uh your choices upon them as well so within yeah, your family that uh, weren't there people s- telling you to stop to that that you're going the wrong direction or you they tried to but you just decided not to listen to them mm, well they didn't really say that much because at the time i was at uni okay and so studying biochemistry right Yes. Yeah. This is the funny part is I was <laughs> studying biochemistry, but the, I think what's particularly interesting about the, the fact I was studying biochemistry is that at that point I was in my third year when this was really at its absolute um, peak. And the things I was learning, it was just so specific. It was down to such tiny details about very specific proteins, very specific pathways that, and I was doing like a whole module on just on photosynthesis and a whole module on like microbial metabolism and things like that. And so I couldn't really relate what I was learning to my experience as a human. Oh yeah. And because it was just so specific, so small and detailed that I, yeah, I I just couldn't relate it. So I know looking back now, I can understand why I couldn't make that connection with me following a very uh, restrictive and not science-based way of eating and way of thinking because I couldn't relate it to my degree in, in, in any way. Um, but no, my, my family, whenever I went home, uh, it was always funny in hindsight, only in hindsight was it funny that I had, I would have a meltdown basically every time there weren't courgettes in the house, because how was I supposed to make my breakfast if there are no courgettes? Because my breakfast was oats, basically half to a whole finely grated courgette and then almond milk all like mixed together and cooked, which was called zotes. And it's really not that nice and it's green. Um, and it doesn't look very appealing, but I, that was my breakfast. And I basically, yeah, I had a meltdown every time there weren't courgettes in the house. It was just, uh, and my parents got kind of got used to the fact that there were certain things that they had to have for me there whenever I came to visit. And there were, there were times when they mentioned in particular, they were, they said to me like, why aren't you eating bread? You have no problem with things like bread. You, you, you know, gluten doesn't affect you. And I was like, no, it makes me feel better. And and then they'd kind of leave it at that because I'd only see them for like a few days at a time. But on the surface, what it really looked like was me trying to be healthy and eat a, eat a healthy diet, live a healthy lifestyle, which is encouraged pretty much by anyone and is seen as a good thing. But for me, it wasn't a good thing because it led me down a path that was very disordered, that was very anxiety inducing, where I was stressing so much about everything I was eating that I was literally having meltdowns when I couldn't eat exactly what I was comfortable with. And it wasn't a very, very nice place to be in. It was very stressful. I spent so much time thinking about food and not really much time thinking about many other things. Um, The things I was eating, I was primarily, I was basically eating for Instagram a lot of the time. I was creating food with the intention of making it look nice for Instagram. And taste was always a secondary priority, which... It's not really how I would recommend people eat. <laughs> yeah, but wasn't wasn't it basically torture to yourself? Oh yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah, it was. I mean, I basically convinced myself that I enjoyed it because I had committed and uh, dedicated so much time and effort and restricted so much um, to achieve this that I got to a point where I couldn't admit to myself that it wasn't really right and it wasn't working and it wasn't healthy because I'd invested so much in it that I was like, I've, I've put in this much effort. It has to work. So I did, I did really convince myself even, and to the point where, yeah, I convinced myself that I liked the, all these foods that I really don't like, which not so good. So basically at that time, looking back, I would, I would consider myself to have had a condition known as orthorexia, which is an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Mm-hmm. To a point where it's taken, where, where it's taken, it's not just trying to be healthier. It's, it's when it's taken to a level where it is actually um, psychologically damaging, 
uh, in severe cases, physically damaging because it can lead to uh, vitamin deficiencies and things like that. And I mean, it completely disrupted my social life. I basically didn't really have much of a social life because I couldn't really go out to eat anywhere apart from a very limited number of restaurants in London, which catered to um, people like me. But I couldn't go to eat most places. So for example, on my birthday in third year, I think it was, or second year, it was second or third year, I can't remember, where I snuck into lectures late and left early on my birthday so that my course mates wouldn't invite me out to lunch because they would want to go to a Chinese buffet and oh my god I could not eat there because I didn't know what was in the food. So instead I went home and ate a salad on my own. <laughs> Which is so miserable. But did you did you also experience the adverse health effects of being so restrictive in your dietary choices? In some ways, yeah, I was very tired a lot of the time, um, probably because I wasn't eating it enough. And I also suspect that I had some kind of um, borderline B12 deficiency because I hadn't eaten anything with B12 for about two years. And that's approximately the amount of time that it takes for it to start to develop. Mm. And I said that would explain also why I was tired all the time. And mainly I was just really miserable. It just made me really, and really just anxious and miserable and not particularly in a happy place. Although I obviously always pretended I was very happy because otherwise I'd have to admit that what I was doing wasn't working. <laughs> so did, did it not occur to you at all that there, there was a connection? Mm, not really. I didn't allow myself to think about oh, yeah. it that way. I just didn't allow myself to think that it might not actually be working. Okay. I even once told my GP that my way of eating was better than his. <laughs> Ooh, wow. That's a bold thing to do. <laughs> yeah, the audacity is just amazing. <laughs> it was just amazing. I mean, it's it's, it's Dunning-Kruger effect so, so bad. Yeah, it's, it's a very classic demonstration of it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, uh, the reason I'm talking here is because it didn't last forever. I am definitely not still eating that way. Um, after I finished uni, I went off traveling. Um, I took a gap year and went traveling around various countries and also spent a lot of time in Australia, um, partly because it's a great place for people to get a visa for a year and work. And also um, because the health scene, the wellness scene in Australia is absolutely huge. So it was a great place for me to, to settle for six months. And while I was there, I did what all health bloggers do, which is I found other wellness bloggers who were in Australia and we became friends because Obviously. we were the, you, when you're a wellness blogger, the only people you can really go out to eat with are other wellness bloggers because they're the only ones who are going to tolerate all the weird, wonderful things and the weird and places that you have to go and eat. So obviously I made friends with these people and we'd go out for dinner every so often. And then one day we were in a car together and I can't remember how this conversation came about. I don't remember what happened just before, but I remember so clearly that one of them said, I would never dream of vaccinating my kids. And that was the point where I thought to myself, what the fuck am I doing with these people? And I was just so shocked at that point. I couldn't believe that this was something that these people believed and that, uh, that I knew was so wrong and so, so damaging. And so I thought to myself, if this is the kind of thing that these people believe, which I know to be wrong, what else do they believe that is also wrong that I might have then picked up on? and taken on board. Mm -hmm. And so I went back home after that. I didn't respond to that person at the time because I, I was genuinely so shocked. It was it was really kind of earth shattering in a way because it really just disrupted everything that I believed about the whole the whole movement. Uh, the whole the whole wellness industry and everything to do with it and so then i went home and i started kind of one by one very slowly researching everything that i thought to be true about wellness and health and gradually pretty much everything one by one fell by the wayside and i may i was very careful this time so i found things like skeptics guide to the universe and quack watch and amazing um websites and places like that but i made sure because they were always amazingly fully referenced, I then made sure to always go and check the original research to make sure that I wouldn't be duped a second time into blindly believing what someone was writing online. And thankfully, I still had access through through the university, I still I still had access to all the papers so I could do all the research. And because of I had some scientific training, I could understand a lot of the research, which was really helpful. 
And so, yeah, one by one, gradually, all these ideas that I had fell by the wayside. And so internally, I'd made quite a big change in what I believed, but externally on social media, it took a lot longer before I was comfortable being public with my changed beliefs online because I was very scared about the backlash. Um, there, I mean, the vegans, vegans are a lovely bunch, most of them, but the Facebook vegans and the Instagram vegans are can be quite nasty and quite extreme. And um, I was definitely worried about what they would say. And it would turn out to be a very well-founded fear because when I did eventually start, start posting pictures of things like eggs and cheese and things like that on Instagram, oh, the hate was intense. I got so much abuse, it was unbelievable. Very aggressive, very, uh, people told me too that I was a terrible human being. People said I needed to die. It was really quite dramatic. So I think it was understandable that I was very hesitant about changing what I was posting online. And so it took, I sort of gradually started posting little bits here and there to kind test the waters. I started posting the occasional kind of myth busting style uh, post and blog post and things like that, just very gradually getting those ideas in there. And eventually I did post a picture with cheese and didn't make some big dramatic announcement because I knew if I did that, I would lose a lot of people. So I wanted to do it gradually. So I would retain a lot of these people who had maybe similar beliefs to what I used to have. But I could gradually slowly change their minds because they saw me as someone who they trusted and who they liked online. And that turned out to actually be very, very successful. And it worked very well because I retained pretty much most of the followers that I had um, managed to accumulate over the course of while I was at my sort of peak wellness, where I was just a massive wellness wanker and a terrible person. But I managed to, yeah, I managed to keep most of those people, which was, which was really, really good. Um, I did obviously lose some. And occasionally when I post about something like how dairy does not leach calcium from your bones, when I post things like that, I do still occasionally lose followers because people usually will say things like, oh, I thought this was a vegan page. Firstly, no. Secondly, that is totally irrelevant. I'm posting about science. The way I eat has no bearing on the scientific evidence and the way I eat should not influence what I post because I'm trying to be as objective as possible. And so if I add in my subjective experience of what I eat, that cannot that is not ideal a lot of the time. So I try and avoid that as much as possible. So people ask me now, what do you eat? I don't use any specific label. I just say to people, I eat what I want because it's vague. It doesn't, I don't even say that I'm an omnivore or that I'm a vegetarian or anything like that because I don't think it's helpful. People don't need to know and it doesn't really matter. And it's none of people's business really, if I'm honest, um, what I eat because again, it doesn't really affect what I post. I know you said that you, you don't uh, explicitly say what your diet is, is or what it's called uh, and whatever, but um, it's a plant-based diet, uh, but you're quite clear that it's not being plants only. So could you tell us what exactly is it in as much or a little detail as you want? Yeah. So I guess I should start by saying my online persona that I created when I joined Instagram was plant-based pixie. That was the persona that I created Um partly because it was catchy. It did have a nice alliteration to it. And I kept that for a long, long time because that's what I was known as. People would come up to me and say, oh, you're plant-based pixie. So that was, that was kind of my name. And while I've changed my social media handles, I haven't changed my blog a name because people still sometimes find me that way. And also I had to have some continuity, um, for people like, um, retailers of books because my first book is uh, is also has the term plant-based pixie in it and so there has to be some continuity so people still recognize that it's still the same person so that's why I've kept that blog title the same even though I'm trying as much as possible to move away from the term plant-based again because I don't like this idea of labeling myself with a specific way of eating but plant-based is if I have to tell people what I eat, plant-based is the one word that I kind of like because it's really, really vague. People often think that it means the same as vegan, but without the ethics. But in in all the scientific research on plant-based, what it really actually means, what the sort of scientific definition, I guess, of plant-based is, is a diet that consists uh, predominantly of plants, but not necessarily only plants. 
So there's a heavy focus on plants because, to be honest, from a health perspective, that is really beneficial to have a, to eat a wide variety of plants and to eat a lot of plants, whether that's fruits and vegetables or pulses or grains, for example. That is extremely beneficial for health. We we kind of know that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you only have to eat plants. And I like that kind of very that really massive vagueness and variability that it allows, and it allows a certain flexibility that a lot of other labels don't really allow because if you say for example oh i'm vegetarian you almost say to yourself i can't eat meat and it's that's the big difference to me is not it's not the i don't want to it's the i can't that i don't like and so if you say plant based there's nothing you can't eat it's about what you want to eat not what you can and cannot eat and that for me is a huge distinction because it's a completely different even though in people's minds it might seem the same that language creates a huge distinction between the two. And so I like plant-based because it's really, really vague. Yeah. It basically allows for you eating pretty much anything you want, which I like the sound of that. I like the sound of eating pretty much anything I want. And that's what I do. I eat anything I want. And it's great. <laughs> and you post gorgeous photography of your food i do yes online but i i believe you do not share recipes anymore do you no i've kind of moved away from sharing recipes because a lot of health and wellness bloggers post a lot of recipes and i feel like i, I could do that as well but i have a certain skill set that means i have a scientific training and i'm good at writing about scientific subjects in a way that people can understand. And so to me, I feel like that's where my attention should be more. And also that's where I want it to be. I don't want to simply be known for creating a really good recipe. I want to be known more for the things I do in relation to nutrition and health and actually dismantling dietary myths and helping people to uh, enjoy food and not feel stressed or anxious or afraid of eating certain things. That to me feels far more important. So I don't really post recipes. I do post pictures of food, partly because it's, they're, they're pretty. Mm -hmm. yeah, they <laughs> and <are. laughs> also, and, and also it really draws people in. So people will be drawn in by the pretty pictures and then I'll throw some science at them and it will reach people who don't necessarily, who don't necessarily come for the science. They come for the pictures of food, but they learn some science along the way and they learn something interesting. And that way I reach um, groups of people who might not necessarily otherwise be willing to follow a purely uh, science-based account. Because if they, if they want, if they if they're on Instagram because they want pretty pictures of food, they're still getting that from me. But they're also getting some information that might helpfully, might might hopefully teach them something new. So, isn't that the the smartest way of luring people into the real stuff? <laughs> it, it's a great form of deception, and I like the fact that it, I like the fact that it's basically a little bit of a dick move. Um, I like that. <laughs> Um, let's talk briefly about your book, The Wellness Rebel. So it's obviously av available in English because that's the language you've written it in. Um, is it available in any other languages at all? Not at the moment, but if you want it to be translated, the best thing you can do is send me an email and I can forward it to my publishers. And the more requests they get, the more likely it is to be translated. So it, it basically depends on demand. Mm -hmm. And how did you, uh, in your experience, how, how did this book do? Was it quite popular? Yeah, I mean, my, my publishers are really happy with how it's done, and I'm I'm really happy with it. It's reached, it's it's interesting because the book has in different bookshops they've placed it in different locations. So in some bookshops they've put it with the um, kind of very more more science books, whereas in other bookshops they've placed it next to the wellness books, Ooh. which is intriguing. I think some bookshops didn't really quite know what to do with it so in some places they actually put it in both which was also quite funny but i like the idea that it's been placed next to wellness books because it does it's meant to look a little bit like a wellness book but because it's got my face on the cover again it's supposed to be deceptively similar to wellness books in terms of if you, if you flick through it there's lots of really colorful pictures of food but then if people were to buy it because the pictures look nice they'll still get a really good dose of a lot of science, which is, which is again, a nice uh, deceiving tactic that I, that I like. Um, <laughs> but no, that, that book was really fun to write. I actually got the book deal while I was studying um, my master's. So I was approached by a literary agent while I was still studying. And then only shortly after I finished my master's, I managed to get a book deal and write this book. So it happened very quickly, but it was very exciting. Yeah. 
And um, you have a, a new book on the way. Do you want to just quickly tell us about that one? Yeah, absolutely. So the first book was The Wellness Rebel because I'm. it's very much focused on the wellness industry and every single chapter is dedicated to dismantling a particular uh, nutrition myth that has become popular mainly because of the wellness in industry and because of social media. So there's things like uh, refined versus unrefined sugar. There's a whole chapter on detoxes. There's a whole chapter on raw food. So things like that that are very popular on social media. But now I've decided to go one step further with the next book. Um, I've done a lot of attacking the wellness industry, both with the book and online and in the talks and things that I've done. But now I really want to tackle the diet industry because essentially the wellness industry is kind of a subgroup of the diet industry. There's so much misinformation that the diet industry uh, portrays and that we all believe that there are lots of things that we all believe about health and about nutrition that really just isn't true. And it's on a much larger scale than simply wellness, although there is a huge wellness influence on that. But that's where I'm going with this next book. Uh, there are no recipes in this one. It's purely, it's a purely uh, evidence-based science book. And it's just gonna be full of lots of dismantling, a lot of bullshit that the diet industry decides to spread onto all of us. And we, we know how much there is out there. <laughs> All these claims about how eating this diet or that diet will cure you from, you know, various diseases up to cancer, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's so much fear mongering as well. And so I've got a whole chapter on like fear mongering tactics that are used in the diet industry and also in the wellness industry. So people can hopefully recognize some of these because when we, we talk a lot about the media and social media, but people don't really talk enough about Netflix documentaries and how really harmful uh, they can be because Netflix is seen as, you know, it's, 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 it's absolutely huge. But some of the documentaries on there are really, really problematic. There's things like What the Health or things like, what's it, OMG GMO and things like that, that are just so wrong, so fear-mongering and just so awful. But people are more likely to believe it because they're very compelling, they're very visual, and because they're associated with Netflix. So I've spent a fair amount of time basically um, analyzing Uh, Netflix documentaries and telling people everything that's wrong with them, which has been great fun as well. <laughs> and I also, I've, got, I've gone into a quite a lot of detail about the language that the diet industry uses. Things like, uh, like cheat meals and things like that, all this kind of language that basically is there to make us feel guilty and feel shame for eating, even though eating is a very natural process that we all need to do in order to survive. But we've been conditioned to feel guilty simply for eating food, which is so problematic. And it's just really not, it's not encouraging health in any way. We know that shame is a very ineffective way of getting people to change their behaviors and, and live healthier lives. So I'm really going in hardcore on every every aspect of the diet industry. Mm, what about junk food? Yeah, I don't like that word either. Yeah. Because again, the connotations that are attached to it is that if you eat junk, that you're basically, you're a bin, which yeah. implies that you are not, that you are worthless, yeah. basically, that you're, you know, mm. and that's a really horrible way of, of looking at food and looking at yourself because, because essentially the food that we eat becomes us as humans because all the food that we eat becomes our muscles, our tissues. And so the way that we talk and think about food is manifested in the way that we talk and think about ourselves. And so if we can talk and think about food in a more positive way, in a less fear-mongering, less guilt-inducing, less shameful way, it actually makes us feel better about our own bodies. And I know this because the research shows it, but also I, I, so I work as a nutritionist now and, and I see this Every week in my clinic, I see people, when you change their ideas about food and you change the way they talk about food, it honestly makes them feel so much better about themselves. And if people feel better about their own bodies, they're more likely to look after their bodies well. And that means that generally means doing things like moving their bodies and also um, fueling them in a way that makes them feel good and able to function. So by actually changing the language around food, it actually usually ends up with people making healthier choices. And this is such a refreshingly healthy attitude towards this uh, set of issues um, that that you show here, show us here. So, so thank you very much for that. Uh, but you did mention that uh, you work at a clinic. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, so, are you a practicing nutritionist at a clinic? Um, so, I have my own private practice. So, um, yes, yeah, so I do a lot of Skype consultations because I have clients from all over Europe, especially, and all over the UK. And I also have a clinic space in Southwest London where I see people as well. And the 
predominantly the people I see tend to be people like chronic uh, people who are chronic dieters, people who have orthorexia, people who have some kind of food issues, or people who feel certain anxieties and, st and stress about eating. And a lot of people are just confused about what to eat, uh, which I think is perfectly understandable when you have, you know, you have all these different uh, diet books and all these different uh, diet programs that all tell you different things and different rules are, are okay or off limits. And that becomes really confusing to people. I think after a while, if you have done, say, five to 10 different kinds of diets with all different rules, you end up in a really confused place where you don't know which rules to follow and which rules not to follow. <laughs> Yeah. And so the goal there is to try and get rid of all those rules and get people into a place where they actually, yeah, get rid of food rules and just have, just eat based on guidelines, not rules and actually enjoy their food more and, and understand more of what a healthy diet actually is because it's not complicated. We really like to overcomplicate it because the more complicated you make it, the more books you can generally sell because people you know, if you tell people eat this, not this, and another person says, oh, eat this, not this. People like those kind of re those those rules, and that goes very well if you're trying to sell a particular diet book, or you're trying to sell people certain products like detox products or weird supplements, like a lot of these American doctors really love to do. But yeah, so that's like, that's a really effective way of of selling books and things. But that's not really how healthy eating actually works. There is no food that you have to eat in order to be healthy, and there's no food you have to avoid in order to be healthy everything is very much context dependent. It is nuanced and it depends on the individual. So what I do with each person is try and work out, you know, based on their preferences, based on their, their cultural uh, background, based on their history with food, based on, you know, what the, the, what they have available, what they can afford and based on what their body needs to basically work out for them what foods they should be eating more of what foods they maybe should be eating a little bit less of, but ultimately finding out what is healthy for that person. And it's very individual. Mm. As I listen to you, it becomes more and more clear to me that you probably need to be on top of things uh, with regards to the psychological aspect of these issues as well when you deal with your 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 clients, your patient. Oh, uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, there, there is no easy way to, to tackle those. No, and it's usually it's quite a long-term process a lot of the time. So a lot of my clients I will see I will see for um, between six months and two years. Wow. So it's quite a long time for some people, not all of them. Obviously, there are some people who I see who just have very uh, straightforward questions and issues and it's, you know, one or two sessions or, you know, one a month for uh, four months and, and they're done. So they're not all really complicated, but a lot of them are because, because of the kind of things that I write and talk about because of my own background with orthorexia. Those are the kind of people I tend to attract a lot more, um, which is fine because I absolutely love it. I find it so interesting and it's so, so rewarding. But yes, I have to make a conscious effort to, um, I do a lot of extra training in things like body image and various um, psychological techniques as well. I'm obviously not a psychologist. And so I really often um, direct people towards psychologists. Um, so they see a psychologist as well as me to make sure that I'm not overstepping my boundaries. Mm -hmm. But I find the psychology of why we make the choices we do, especially around food, I find that so, so interesting. That to me is far more interesting. I'm far more interested in why someone eats something rather than what they eat. Can I ask you more of a personal question with regards to your motivations? Yeah. So how much of what you do is coming out of some sense of guilt about your former ways and making up for it. <laughs> I would say it's not so much guilt, it's more anger. Okay. I am angry at the fact that I, well, I'm partly a little bit angry at myself for falling for these kinds of myths, even though I know that's not particularly constructive, but I'm more angry at all these people who are peddling pseudoscience and bullshit and all those people who, who, can, who basically convinced me to cut out all these things from my diet, they are still out there and they are still very, very popular on social media. They haven't really gone anywhere. Most of them are still very much growing in popularity. There's only one or two have disappeared uh, in recent years. And I'm angry at the fact that these people dupe me. I'm angry that they're still out there and I'm angry that they're still uh, peddling this bullshit to other people. And so that I, I kind of try and channel that anger into something constructive, which is 
to help other people get out of that space or to help them avoid getting into that space in the first place. So it's less guilt, although I think that there might be a little bit of that, but it's definitely more anger than anything else. It's anger and frustration. And if you ever see any of my, uh, I do like Instagram live sometimes, or if I post things on Instagram, you can usually tell that there is an undercurrent of anger in that. And I think it's, it's worked out very well for me so far that anger has been a very, very good motivator. It works very well. And are those people that you just mentioned, have they turned against you when you changed your mind? The All the wellness bloggers and peddlers of pseudoscience? No, funnily enough, they haven't so much turned against me as they are. I get the impression that they're a little bit scared of me which is amazing. I honestly am so happy about that. I love it that they're slightly intimidated and scared by me because they know that if I, <laughs> and I, if I call them out, that it's, and that I don't care about any of the repercussions. I'm because I am fueled by, by anger. I'm not fueled by some desire to be famous or to be popular. That's not the goal. The goal isn't for, for my face to be everywhere. The goal is for for people to get accurate information so that they can make informed decisions about their health based on based on information rather than misinformation. And so they know that, and because they know that, they see that, they're slightly scared that I'm going to start calling them out. And so I've often had people try and be really nice to me in person so that so that they almost like take pity on them or something or so that I don't end up attacking them. But obviously that doesn't work. I still attack them. But I, as much as possible, I prefer not to attack people by name. I try and attack the ideas and leave it up to other people to kind of draw the conclusions as to where that might've come from. Because for me, attacking the idea rather than the person it feels like a better way of going about things. There are obvious exceptions. So if someone is hugely, hugely popular and peddling a lot of bullshit, like the medical medium, for example, I will happily write a post about all the bullshit that he says and why he's a terrible, terrible source of medical advice and why everyone should ignore and unfollow him. But those kind of posts don't really make me very popular. Um, <laughs> when I posted about the medical medium, I lost like a thousand followers very quickly. Wow. I, which I, which I thought was quite funny to be honest. Um, but it just goes to show how people are very happy to follow a science account until you attack their little, um, their little precious little aspect that they don't want to challenge themselves on, which again is, is I find really interesting in a way. So I'm less, it doesn't really affect me in a negative way. I more just find it really interesting Mm. that people have though that people feel so strongly about certain things and i find it intriguing yeah well we, we've kind of talked briefly in the past about the backfire effect you know when you are trying to convince someone someone and they've taken the position let's say with vaccinations that uh, the vaccine vaccination is bad for you and then you go uh, go back to them and say look these are the facts of why that's not the case they double down on their beliefs and just believe it even more because it's conspiracy so <laughs> So there's a lot of this kind of I can see uh, pa similar patterns in 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 what you were, were just talking about, where people kind of say, okay, well, it's yeah, she's probably just another conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. But this is partly why I like social media because it feels less personal because you're not directing a social media post at a particular person. It's mm. going out to lots of people, and so people are people still sometimes get defensive, but I think they're less likely to get defensive because they know it's not directed at them personally. And I've often found that people have messaged me and said, I've been following you for a few months now and I've seen you post about these things. And at first I didn't believe you, but as I've seen it again and again and come back to it, I've realized that actually you're right. So that, so the good thing about social media is that it's one of the few good things about social media is that you can slowly convince people over time rather than it just being, you know, one post and they're like, oh my God, you were right. It tends to take a little bit of time. So I will often post about the same thing several times a year because it reinforces that. Well, partly because new people come along as well, but also it slowly reinforces it. And it does work because people do say that, you know, by the third time I posted about something, they're like, oh you're, yeah, you're right. You've got me to think about this a couple of times now. And actually, yeah, I realized uh, uh, the way I was thinking about this was, was not helpful and was actually not not great but yeah so sometimes it's still sometimes it's still fun to just really go hard on a particular person <laughs> it's human nature isn't it <laughs> oh yeah especially when it's someone like medical medium i mean what a dick uh, you, you you really sound like you you seek out the that excitement of confrontation is that something that really is part of part of your yeah kind of i guess yeah in a way and i feel if i Right. If I write several posts or it's been too long since I've pissed people off, 
I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Mm. I mean, I feel like if I'm not pissing people off fairly regularly, <laughs> not like every day necessarily, but reasonably regularly that I'm not doing my job properly mm. because it means I'm not, it means I'm not challenging people's beliefs, which means I'm, it's not reaching the right people and I'm not doing it right. But is that part of your personality or does it come with that anger that you mentioned earlier? that that has built up i think it comes from the anger okay. yeah i think i think it's the anger more than anything else because in person i'm not so i'm not really so keen on the one-to-one -one confrontations although there are certain individuals who i would love to debate yeah. in a public forum because i would love to just destroy them but <laughs> in general i i don't find it very comfortable when people come up to me and start talking about a particular thing that is bullshit i find it very uncomfortable to say to them in person hey that's bullshit i'm more inclined to then email them after being like, hey, so can we talk about this over email? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You do cover so many different issues uh, from the gluten-free diets to detox, uh, superfoods, alkaline diets, raw food uh, that, that you mentioned earlier. So which one do you find is the most difficult to change people's minds about? Oh, I think the most difficult is anything to do with animal products. Okay. I found that, especially on, on Instagram, I think on Twitter it's slightly different, but on Instagram, anytime you say anything remotely positive about an animal product, people get very upset about but, it. Yeah. I think, I think this whole issue of the um, production, the animal industry at the moment, and the moral kind of reasoning behind it kind of got in the way of things as well. Oh, hugely, yeah. And because people like things to be very black and white, they also like to think that if something's bad for the environment, it must be bad for your health as well. People are very uncomfortable with the idea that something can be good in one sense, but bad in another sense. So if something um, like beef or like any any animal products being you know bad for the environment or or they see it as unethical um in terms of production there's then this extrapolation that it must also be bad for health because that way it's just universally bad and that's far easier for people to get their heads around than the idea that it's actually not necessarily bad for your health but it is maybe not so ideal for the environment people find that that very uncomfortable because it's not very straightforward it's not black and white it's much more nuanced And so yeah. if you make, if you make any arguments about the, the fact that, you know, things like, like I said before, the idea that uh, dairy leaches calcium from your bones, it's not true. Dairy does not leach calcium from, from your bones. In fact, dairy is a great source of calcium that can, is ideal for your bones. It's a, it's a great source. But you say that on social media, people will say, oh, I can't believe you're promoting the dairy industry. You're, you know, you're a terrible person. It's such an unethical thing. It's like, I'm not talking about the ethics right now. I'm simply trying to dismantle a particular myth because if someone wants to not eat dairy for ethical environmental reasons, it is not my place to tell them that they're wrong. That is their decision. But if someone is cutting out dairy because of a misinformed belief about the health effects, then I feel like it, I, it is my responsibility to correct that so that they're not making that decision based on fear and misinformation. They're basing, it, they're basing that decision on something that is accurate. It is still their decision, but I just don't want them to make it based on misinformation and fear. Absolutely correct. But also I think this kind of stance, you know, the this uh, feeling or, or desire to see everything in black and white really stops us from having these difficult discussions and conversations that will be productive uh, and having discussions about, okay, let's Meat actually isn't bad for you, but let's talk about the um, ethical side of meat production. Let's let's try to figure it out. Whereas now people are just like putting their fingers in the air and saying, la la la, I don't want to know, and meat is bad and let's not ever eat it. Also, they never mention um, anything about how, for example, the agriculture in general is very bad for the environment and cutting out the forests and, you know, clearing all the trees just to have yet another patch to grow I don't know, whatever vegans eat. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not very helpful stance all around. <laughs> no, and what I find interesting, so I, as I said, I mean, I'm never going to tell someone who's avoiding animal products for ethical reasons that they shouldn't necessarily. I'm not going to do that. But what I find interesting is that if you talk about the health aspects of foods, like animal products in particular, people are very quick to, to say, but what about ethics? Whereas you would never see it the other way around. You would never see someone talking about ethics and someone jumping in and going, oh, yeah, but what about the health benefits? It never, it's always only very one-sided. And that to me is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. 
I could listen to 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 you explaining all this hours on end, but uh, I'm afraid we, we're going to have to conclude this interview uh, pretty soon. So please tell us something about how people can can catch you at a talk, or uh, where can people find out more about your work? How can they get your book uh, hands on their your books as well? So uh, what's the best way to follow you? Uh, Instagram is where I tend to post the most. So I'm on all social media as at Pixie Nutrition, which is hopefully pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, <laughs> um, I also, I do. So my book, the next one, the No Need to Diet book, comes out in March. So during that time, I'll be doing a lot of uh, public speaking and things around the UK. But I do have a couple of talks coming up in January as well, in in London in particular. And all the details of that will be on my website. And if you Google my name, generally, because Pixie is quite an unusual name, if you Google my name, it will probably come up with me and not anyone else, which is quite useful. And um, the books, you can find them on Amazon. In, or in all bookshops in the UK, uh, in Australia as well, and in s- some places in the US as well. And also, if you're uh, in- international, so you're not UK, you can also find it on the book depository and you can get free delivery there as well. Mm-hmm. Nice. Great. All right. So thank you very much again. Um, thanks very much for the great work that you do. And thank you very much for coming on the show as well. Thanks for letting me talk for so long. <laughs> <laughs> It's our, It pleasure, our pleasure, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Um, take care and hope to catch you at uh, one of the conferences. Are you going to be at the next QED in 2020? I am definitely going to be at the next QED. I loved it so much. I am definitely coming back. So, um, I will see you there. See you there, if not, if not before. Indeed. All right. Take care. Pixie Turner, thank you very much. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was uh, so that was a great uh, great interview. Wasn't I it? Really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm really hoping that our listeners enjoyed it too. Yeah, and and let's hope that she, with her attitude and her personality, she'll change lots of hearts and minds, and do a good job. I met her in person, and she's just such a lovely. She has this lovely personality to her, and absolutely harmless kind of uh, no bullying not hurting people and yet she likes confronting people when it comes to dietary choices and this these these issues and how scientific or unscientific they are yeah so i really admire that attitude yeah it's great it's uh, i think it's a healthy thing to do really and uh, mm-hmm. it's becoming yes, more it and more of a problem people are shying away from the conflicts they want to be they don't want to feel the aggravation and stuff but i think that's the only way you can grow and learn new things and challenge your uh, beliefs and ideas yeah but she did mention another thing as well which is um doing it little by little so mm. bit by bit you mm. can mm. win people over and It's not going to happen by just confronting them and saying that this is bullshit. So calling out bullshit is not no, the only way to do it. Not and, the only. And yes, de- not definitely, the only it way. it scares a lot of people away. Yeah. It pushes them pushes them away. So you have to be careful. You've got to pick your battles, I guess. Yeah. That's that's the message. And I I do think that she has done it in a yeah. very smart way. Well, that, so the... that that transition from yeah. being a believer of it to being a critic that's that's and the fact that she's retained most of her followers uh speaks a lot for for her efforts yeah 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 all right so yeah we could praise her all year long and probably we'll do occasionally but uh now i think we are concluding the show And please do join us again next week. Mm-hmm. And thank you very much for joining me today, Yelena. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And until next week, goodbye. Goodbye. Baka, baka. Oh, we slapped. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. 
We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. On every other episode, we usually interview someone... <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> <laughs>